welcome to Linux Action News, our weekly take on Linux and the open source world. This is episode two, recorded on May 21st, 2017. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. Now, I really hope we screw this one up. We got This is when we have to make all of our mistakes. This is just the second episode, so everything has to be wonky. Okay? Do you mind? No, I'm sure it'll be absolutely perfect. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we all have a chance to make it perfect if we participate... In the future. And that's what Ubuntu is going for. Boy, that is, there we go. See, leave that in there. That'll be an example of things I'll never say in the future, Joe, right there. I'll never do that transition again because it doesn't matter. Uh, The Ubuntu desktop team is discussing openly their plans for GNOME in Ubuntu 17.10. And it appears to be much more than what Mark led us to believe, huh, Joe? I wouldn't go as far as say much more. Really? Because I had been led to believe that it would be basically stock GNOME. Yeah, me too. And they are at least considering the possibility of various GNOME extensions and customization, but I I don't think it's as much as it appears to be, because it's one thing to consider it, it's another to actually implement it. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. So this is, a lot of this information is coming from OMG Ubuntu. Ken Van Dyne, who's been with Canonical for a long time as a software engineer, he's now part of the Ubuntu desktop team, which, by the way, there's an Ubuntu desktop team. Yeah, he, just what I was thinking. Yeah, there's a, there is a team. Okay, we've that, got that. That's a good sign. That's a good sign. And he was chatting with Joey over at OMG Ubuntu, and Joey was asking him several questions. And he was a little evasive, because I think, and I don't mean to say evasive in a bad way, but he was evasive because they don't know all of the answers yet. But he says they're considering a few tweaks here and there to ease users into the new experience. And so they're looking at things like uh, how to work the existing Unity look into client-side decorations and a few other things. Um, it looks to me like a lot more than just stock gnome. I, again, I don't think a lot is the right word because there's, there's no HUD... There's no global right. menus, you know. No, yeah, there's no global menus. Uh, it essentially is moving ambience over to GNOME with uh, client-side decoration support. That's really essentially it, plus then maybe a few extensions on top. I don't know. I think that there are going to be a lot of Unity users who are not going to be happy with the fact that this is their default um, setup. You know, they, they are going to upgrade from potentially from 1604 to 1804 or maybe they're on the six monthly ones and they're going to upgrade from unity and it's going to be the unity story all all over again isn't it you had it from gnome 2 to unity suddenly bam it's right in front of you this is everything's different yeah and now you're going to have it again you've got sure. no desktop i mean sure. unless they implement these um extensions where you can have a desktop and stuff i mean that to me Okay, it might seem like a small thing, but to me, it's quite a big thing. Suddenly, you go from having a desktop on which you can put things to a wallpaper that you can't even right-click on and do anything with. So the two things that jump out at me is it seems that most users that would be on a six-month release cycle would probably be cognizant of the changes coming down the pipeline. And then the other folks that are switching maybe just now or they're upgrading their installations like you're talking about, I wonder if they're actually doing an upgrade. If they don't take the Unity 7 packages out of the repo, then wouldn't they just upgrade and keep using Unity? Well, it looks like Unity is going to be an option if you log out and then you've got that drop-down menu. So they're going to be in the repo then, the packages. Yes. So you've got the option to go for that, but by default, they're going to push GNOME. I wonder. So the other thing that jumps out at me is... uh, 
where do they draw the line? So they have a survey that they've launched right now. They're they're asking folks via OMG Ubuntu what they would want to see in a, an Ubuntu GNOME. And the things that they're considering are what extensions should we just bake in? And they're asking some great questions and they're getting some great traction. But I think I have an issue with the premise. What's the issue? I don't blame them for being uncomfortable shipping a stock GNOME setup. But if you stack too many extensions into this thing by default, you could be asking for a bad time. Now, they're going to be able to update the packages all together. So in theory, you'd have a deb for one of the extensions and it would get updated when the GNOME desktop gets updated. But I, I do worry that if we go too far, one of the, so I'll give you an example, Joe. The one that really bothers me is the applications menu extension, which is under consideration. This dramatically changes the interaction with GNOME. So when you hit the super key, instead of getting the application's full screen overlay with the overview, you get a, you get a menu that drops down that would remind you of Cinnamon. And this is a pretty big deviation from the standard use of GNOME that you would find, say, on Fedora or OpenSUSE or Arch. Yeah, but it sounds good to me. But I'm an XFCE user, aren't I? So what do you expect? I suppose it would sound good to a lot of it's it would sound good to a lot of new users, but it totally is forfeiting now the collective benefit of all of us using a common interface on Linux. Yeah, but isn't the beauty of GNOME the fact that you do have these extensions and that unlike Unity, which was like it or lump it, this is how it is, with GNOME you can have a bunch of extensions. You can do yep. whatever you want to it. Yeah. Yep. You can I mean Cinnamon started with a bunch of extensions. Yes, to a degree. But like my uncle always tells me, with great power comes great responsibility. And I feel like you do have to be careful that you don't completely alter the user experience from upstream. You see, I don't agree with that. I think that this is a chance for Canonical to put their stamp on GNOME. And using extensions, which are commonly used, this isn't some crazy third-party forked code or whatever. It's their chance to stand out against Fedora. And, and other distros that use basically stock upstream GNOME. Yeah, I suppose you're right, Joe. And as long as they're using something that's already out there in the open that the community is already working on, at the end of the day, it's not that big of a deviation. And it's something that could be easily turned off. You know, they're getting a lot of results. They've had over 16,000 responses taking the uh, 1710 GNOME desktop survey, and they want more. In fact, they're pleading, go out to omgubuntu.com. Even if you're not an Ubuntu user, you've if you have some experience with the GNOME desktop and you want to give them your take on it, I think it's worth taking the survey. I've done it. Have you taken the survey, Joe? Yes. I answered one question. I have to know. Buttons on the right, please. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Buttons on the right, please. I completely but agree. The, the GNOME extension that I didn't know enough about, they all seem fairly sensible to me, but I didn't want to have an influence over something that I shouldn't, if you know what I mean. But yeah, if you do yeah. use GNOME, then definitely you've got no excuses, really. If, if I mean, I think it was um, Popey and Wimpy were saying this on the Ubuntu podcast. If you don't have your say and then they don't implement the stuff that you want, then you can't really complain, can you? It reminds me of many years ago when they were looking for input on other aspects of the Ubuntu desktop. It's in some ways history repeating itself. And one of the things that's repeating, it was one of my favorite things as a Linux user in the past. Well, speaking of many years past, let's talk about Windows Server. You used to get involved in that, didn't you? Oh, I did. Many, many, <laughs> many servers I've set up. And imagine if you could have had the Windows subsystem for Linux on a Windows Server. Wouldn't that have made things easier? A game changer. So many times over the years, I came up with different methods and approaches to get SSH on a Linux, or I'm sorry, on a Windows box. We could connect from a Linux box and do SCP and things like that, or get uh, event logs into syslog and get some sort of equivalency of cron because I, I really was not a big fan of the Windows scheduler. And now 
Now, somebody down way down in the depths of Microsoft has heard my pain, and they've announced that coming soon to Windows Server will be the WSL, which is the Windows subsystem for Linux, on Windows Server. I mean, this is just more admission from Microsoft that Linux has won, isn't it? The proof will be in the pudding, Joe, on how people actually end up using it. Will it just be a way to move some of your favorite Bash scripts over to Windows and automate things? Or are you going to end up with people running SSH servers and maybe Nginx on Windows? It, either way, is going to be a huge boon for Linux admins that have to manage these systems, say, under virtualization. That's got to be a very common use case. And now they can take some of their same scripts and manage the Windows boxes. That's the big, that's the really big part that Microsoft is pushing. And they're really trying to downplay the fact that you could probably also run services. I, I don't know for sure, but it seems very likely. But you've got much more experience than me in enterprise, right? My understanding is that enterprise, desktop-wise, you're basically stuck with Windows. And that's why the, the subsystem makes much more sense on Windows 10 desktop. But in terms of Windows Server, isn't Linux much more prevalent there already in the enterprise? And so it's kind of not, not as important to be able to have Linuxy stuff on Windows because you can just run a Linux server if you want to. To me, it seems like this is also Microsoft trying to make containers like Docker work on Linux, trying to make the uh, super nano versions of, of Windows that can run inside VMs or run VMs. And they're trying to also answer the market that is running Windows servers on Linux hosts. And I, to me, as a system administrator, if I could run a script to move some files around that I can run on a Windows system and I can run on a Linux box, that's a huge win. And it's going to make me more comfortable implementing a Windows system because I can move that knowledge now over to the Windows box to administer it. It's, it's fascinating to see Microsoft acknowledge a reality where Linux has a huge presence on the server and they're trying to make Windows more amenable. When I was in the enterprise way, way back in the early start when I first got started, I watched Microsoft do this same exact thing with Novell's NetWare. They really made it easy to use Windows with NetWare. They created their own NetWare client that was integrated into the Windows operating system. They made it possible for Windows clients to connect to NetWare shares. They made it talk all the IPX protocols required to communicate with NetWare. It was really smooth the way at each layer of the Windows experience, from the user layer to the server layer to the network communications layer, over time they added support for NetWare until... Until NetWare started to decline in market share. And then they started removing support for NetWare. And then it became more inconvenient and more inconvenient to work with NetWare systems. And I don't think that's what Microsoft's doing here, but it, it does strike a similar tone. Well, you know, I was concerned. Uh, I spoke about it on uh, last week's show about how this subsystem for Linux is eating away potentially at Linux market share. I just don't see that with adding it to the Windows server, because I think that people who are really serious about Linux on the server are using it anyway. And so I think it's probably a good thing because it's basically adding a little bit more Linuxiness to people who have to use Windows server. Yeah. So I, I, I don't see it as a threat. I yeah. see it as a good thing, yeah. basically. Yeah, I think I completely agree with your take on it. The only place I could see it being a bad thing is if you just needed that one open source application. Like I was saying earlier, you just need Nginx. This sort of solves that problem for you. Now you don't have to hassle with a VM or even a container. You can just get your Windows server that already has everything else, install Nginx, and call it good. Yeah, I suppose. Um, we should do a quick follow-up on last week. We talked about how Fedora, SUSE, and Ubuntu are going to be in the Windows App Store. 
and therefore we assumed they would be on Windows 10 S. Well, Microsoft have clarified their position on this, and that is not going to be the case. So the the stripped down gimped version, I suppose you'd say, of Windows 10 that's going to be coming out soon, where you can only install stuff from the App Store, is not going to support anything that is command line or basically powerful. <laughs> so it's not going to work. So this idea that students are going to be using um, these machines and are going to be able to use Linux or at least the subsystem for Linux, that is not going to happen. Yeah, they emphatically say so on their MSNDN blog. They they literally bolded and put an exclamation mark on no, this is not going to happen. They really want us to know this is not going to happen. It does It does strike me this is a policy and not a technological limitation. So if they felt all of a sudden it would be competitively advantageous to them, they, they could flip the switch and turn it on. Well, you say technological reasons, but there's no reason why you can't install any Windows application on Windows 10S. It's all policy. And the, the policy kind of makes sense to me. I mean, it seems weird to agree with Microsoft, but if you're going to have a lockdown system, you don't want to have something that's going to fuck with the the underpinnings of the operating system, potentially. So you're not going to have basically the command prompt at all. You're not going to have mm. regedit, I wouldn't have thought. Yeah. And that makes a ton of sense. Like if you want to have something that's going to be strong and stable, to use a phrase that uh, UK listeners will hate, that's the way to do it. And and it makes sense to me that running this Linux stuff, it, it's not for the kind of users who Windows 10 S is aimed at. Yeah, fair enough. I think you're completely right. Yeah, well, we don't want to spend too much time talking about Windows. So uh, let's talk about another app story. <laughs> and this one has a lot of aspirations for bringing third-party developers to desktop Linux. Our friends over at Elementary OS have an update to their Loki release. And for those of you that don't run Elementary OS as your daily driver, they've had updates in December, January, February, and March, and April. So they've been consistently updating the OS. But this is sort of one update that brings everything together, including the latest Granite, which is sort of like the go-to spot for developers, and their big app center, which is pay-for-what-you-want apps. So if you want to pay a dollar or you want to pay $10, it's your choice. Sort of humble bundle style. Yeah, or you can pay zero, as I tested, and that is working. Yep. So that's all good. Yeah, I mean, this is a great idea in theory, and I'll get back to why it's a great idea in theory in a second, that... If you're a developer, you can put your software on there and people can either download it for free to try it or they can chuck you a few dollars if they want to. And the good thing about the implementation of it is there are no logins, there's no stored credentials or anything. You just put in your card details. It's handled by Stripe, which let's hope is secure. And then it just gets dealt with. And you could say, well, hang on, surely you need an account to get those apps back if you reinstall or you install on another machine. But, well, you can just put in zero, right? So there's no problem there. You can support the developers however often or not you're able to. So in theory, this is great. In practice, it's not ready yet. They've pushed it into the, the distro, and it's not ready. I mean, I downloaded the ISO, installed it on a very standard uh, box, which is just an i5 with no discrete graphics, nothing out of the ordinary. Triscoll runs perfectly on this machine, put it that way. That's how standard it is. <laughs> and it just didn't work. Hang on. Well, how do you mean it didn't work? Okay, so I click on the App Center icon. It thinks about it for a bit, and then nothing happens. Oh. What kind of GPU is in this system? It's Intel graphics. Oh, okay. 
Huh. And so I was like, what the, and I tried a few times. Okay. I put it on a Kaby Lake system. I did not have this problem. Well, I mean, this is a second gen i5, so it's pretty old, pretty standard hardware. So hmm. I thought, well, I wonder what happens if I do a, uh, apt get update and dist upgrade. Oh yeah, sure. And I did that rebooted and then it worked perfectly. Ah, so the thing is, so I did get to try it out, but the point is this elementary is a distro that is aimed at new users to Linux. I mean, there's no doubt about that, right? It's, it's supposed to be a user-friendly, um, smooth experience. Yeah. And yeah, I'm having to drop to a terminal to fix the problem. And this was on the release ISO? Yeah. Wow. I did not run into that problem. Uh, that, yeah, I, okay. So that seems like that was a, that was a bug that you hit. Uh, I was, I did not run into that. I was much more impressed because once I launched the app center, not only was it the pay for once you want apps, but the other thing they've added is you can install proprietary drivers. So I needed the Intel microcode for this laptop. And that was just listed right there as an update inside the app center. Easy peasy. I clicked update all, got it. And I was done. Yeah, I was offered that and um, installed it, and that's worked perfectly, again, after I'd fixed that little bug in it. But it just feels that it's just a little bit too early to push it into the mainstream. Yeah. Daniel would tell you, the, the founder of Elementary OS, Daniel would tell you that this is a minimum viable product. They've built something they can put out the door that they feel works, that uh, has the basic transaction process. The other thing you'll note is missing from this is the ability to review or rate applications. That's obviously something they're going to add, but it just wasn't ready to ship yet. Yeah, I can't help but think they should have hung on a bit, personally. I think that they've got their unstable PPAs that you can add, and if you want to test it for them, you know, there's a huge community doing that for them. And I think that was the place to put it in, not into the mainstream release yet. I think give it another yeah. bit of development, a bit more testing. Sure. But, but I'm quite a conservative person. I'm sitting here running Zubuntu 16.04, so, you know. Fair enough, but I think part of this is they want to start making some money. They want to give developers a way to make money. They want to start paying for the developer that they have working on this application. And so the minimum viable product was the ability to sell apps. And then adding reviews or uh, other functionality down the road would be something that once this thing's making money, you fund that development with. Yeah, no, okay, that does make a lot of sense, actually. And I'd, I would very much like to see that stuff happen quickly, though. Down the road... Sounds a bit nebulous and abstract. Let's hope they've got a proper roadmap for how quickly this is going to happen. You know, that's why I've been taking the elementary OS project more seriously in the last couple of years, because they really do seem to do this right. So they get together, they fund the sprint where they build the product and the spec. The first they spec it, then they get a basic product built, then they de they dev it. And in this case, they even they even brought somebody in their own team up to a to like an actual paid developer position to work on this thing. So that way they have dedicated internal resources. So as a business, they also they also shift the business to support something like this that they launch. And then they get it out the door. They actually ship it. It didn't take them a year. Like it only took them a few months from the crowdfunder to actually get it out there to start making money to pay for the investment that the business has taken the risk to take. Yeah, that's true. I was surprised at how quickly it came out, to be fair. So yeah, well done to them for that, Yeah, I suppose. I mean, I, I just, I think just a couple more weeks, maybe. Yeah, maybe. But but then, you know, then you end up with Debian, don't you? <laughs> I agree. It does feel very early. Uh, but I guess you do have to start somewhere. You know, it strikes me, Joe, as sort of interesting that they're the only distribution doing this. Isn't that interesting now? Because Canonical's not really doing this anymore. There's no click and run. Ubuntu Mate has the uh, the welcome screen, the boutique, but that's all free stuff. 
there's nobody that's really trying to make a profit from an app store on the Linux desktop anymore. They're the only ones. Yeah, you kind of have to ask yourself, why is that? <laughs> if Canonical couldn't make it work, has the technology really changed? Have times moved on for the yeah. better for the Linux yeah. desktop? Well, I will I will give the elementary guys this. The buying experience is 10 times smoother and much more streamlined on the elementary app center than it was on the software center under Ubuntu. Do you remember how you had to have an Ubuntu One account and put your address mm. in there? Right? This on the elementary OS app center, it's just a little stripe pop-up. Just give me your payment yeah. information. Done. Yeah, it is much simpler. So hopefully that was the barrier to entry before and hopefully this will take off because i know people i heard a lot of stories about developers wanting to make a go of the ubuntu one and it never worked out so fingers crossed for elementary eh? this episode of linux action news is brought to you by linux academy go to linuxacademy.com unplugged and sign up for a free seven-day trial and support the show once you sign up you get step-by-step video courses downloadable comprehensive study guides and it comes with your own server they'll spin up a, a dedicated server for you on demand. They have seven plus distributions you can choose from. And when you choose that distribution, not only does the courseware update, but so does the virtual machine that they spin up. And of course, as you go, you get to keep track of your progress and see where you're at and how far you have left to go and pick up right where you left off if you have to stop. And they have virtual labs for AWS that save you those surprise fees. LinuxAcademy.com slash unplugged. That's where you go to support this show and sign up for a free seven-day trial. It's a platform to learn more about Linux and all of the services that will make you money, like OpenStack, AWS and even Azure and much, much more, you find it all at linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. Okay, now I know you're a big fan of Alexa and uh, the Amazon Echo. I know you've got them controlling all sorts of things in the studio. And we've talked about this, haven't we, that where's Minecraft? Why haven't they delivered? Well, it looks like they are finally ready to ship. This week, as you're listening to this, they're going to start shipping out to people but it's going to be an advanced prototype, not the final thing. And, oh, yeah, you have to pay a little bit more delivery. <clears throat> this happened to me. So I was a backer, and I, I've been getting emails all week, and it has been like salt in the wound. Last chance, last chance. I get one every day. It's my last chance to spend an additional $250 to get what I backed. This has happened to me several times now. But it really stings, you know, because I know at home I could set up a Raspberry Pi 3, a USB microphone, and a speaker, and I basically have the same thing. I'm not super compelled to go dump an additional $250, and I can't be the only one feeling this way. What level did you back it at then? You know, Joe, it was so long ago. <laughs> I, I tried to find out, but it was so long ago, I don't recall. But I, I backed it at a level. I, I can tell you this. I backed it at a level where I could get a piece of hardware soon enough that I could be one of the first people on a podcast talking about it. That's the level I backed it at. <laughs> yeah. And, and yet you still haven't had anything uh, from them. No, no. And I don't really at this point expect much. In fact, Mycroft themselves said that anyone that wants a polished retail level experience should probably wait around, oh, I don't know, until February 2018. That does not look good, does it? No. I mean, with uh, Amazon moving forward, with Google obviously moving forward, and rumors of Apple shipping a Siri in a tube, I got to imagine that this is going to be two years too late. Yeah. I mean, the, when they did the crowdfunder, and let's not forget they did two, an Indiegogo and a Kickstarter, that was the time to deliver it. 
I do want to be really wrong about this because I really would love to see them succeed. So I, I say all of this with the hope that maybe long term they have a chance. But right now, they themselves admit they have a long way to go. In their recent post, they say we're currently working on their if-then-then-that skill, Pandora functionality, Netflix integration, and more. They're also working to improve the overall voice interaction, making it easier for users to manage skills and settings, and etc. So they have quite a ways to go because right now the competitors on the market can do all of these things and they've been able to do these things for a while. And this is where open source often finds itself, don't you think? Yeah, I think that's fair to say really. And it is just massively too late in this particular case. Often with open source it can be a little bit lagging behind and maybe not quite as good, but it's just far, far too late. I mean, that said, I am somewhat baffled that anyone would want to talk to a computer i mean i know that you like to control your lights and stuff you've got like kind of a a a relevant use case for it but the kind of person who sticks it in their house and just asks it the weather and the news and stuff i mean like even you using it for something practical don't you feel like a bit of a dickhead talking to it I definitely did it first. So the way you feel is 100% the way I felt before I tried it. And that's why I tried it. I wanted to challenge myself because I thought it was ridiculous. And to be honest with you, Joe, you have Google Assistant if you're on Android and you've got Shlomo if you're on the iPhone and they can do a lot of this stuff. So I thought this was going to be a obvious loser. And I would agree if you just use it for asking it basic information, there's no point. There's really no point. However, if you do integrate it in with components in your household or in your studio or where you work, or when Dell made the case with the EdgeX Foundry stuff in a manufacturing plant, then I start to see a lot more use cases for it. And I could see where Mycroft would actually be more useful. And I also imagine a scenario where you could have home entertainment integrators that could integrate Mycroft throughout the house. Because one of the great things about Mycroft is you can have a central system, if I recall. One central brain, sort of Iron Man style, where you have Jarvis in one spot and all of the devices are connected to that one central brain. Picture a huge mansion full of entertainment systems and smart devices with one central Mycroft managing it all. That's a future I could dig. Yeah. Well, we'll have to see what happens, whether they actually delivered. They made a lot of promises, or rather, someone who worked for them made a lot of promises. And then he left for whatever reason. So we'll just have to see whether they can deliver on the promises that he made. But um, yeah, we'll watch this space and we might report back next week. We'll see what happens. But anyway, let's talk about Google I.O. We talked about it at the end of last week's show, I think. Now, I've got a question for you. Was there anything that really stood out as interesting to you at Google I.O.? Besides Project Treble, which I which, which we already talked about, uh, I would have to say that just Android O itself seems like it'll be a decent update for those of us that are using Android. I like notification dots that remind me of what I get on iOS. And I'm glad they're finally instituting iOS-like background limits, which will be pretty much, I think, in line with much with what much of us expect from our smartphone. And if you're not familiar, it just puts limits on background location and Wi-Fi scans and things like that that sometimes apps can go crazy with. What about you? Yeah, I mean, they call that vitals, don't they? Um, battery life and um, smoothness. And I think that that is very important. I mean, they basically have said that in Android O, there's going to be 
a few new features like the picture in picture and stuff but generally yeah, yep, speaking yep. most of the work that they're doing is on stability mm-hmm. and kind of background plumbing which is good to see mm-hmm. i agree did you see the uh stuff about android go which seems to be like a like an effort to make android more usable on lower end devices so devices that have one gig or less than memory, they're going to say that's going to be the Android Go experience, where they've optimized Android O to run smoothly on those devices. Yeah, it's such a brilliantly novel idea, isn't it? Like Android targeted at low-end phones for developing markets. You'd think that maybe they would have done this before at some point. Hmm. Hmm. Hang on, Android One. Oh, Isn't that what that was? Yeah, that was my first thought too. Although I do like this approach, so it's less of a let's break into emerging markets and more of a let's just target low-end devices. And by doing so, let's take a look at some of our apps. Let's make things like YouTube and Chrome use a little less memory, maybe use a little less storage space and mobile data. And that could affect and improve Android apps across the ecosystem. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think it's good news generally. To, to slim down stuff and make it more efficient. But I mean, it is definitely, I mean, they talk about the uh, building for billions uh, program. So, I mean, this is clearly aimed at the developing market, but they've maybe realized that it's not enough to just make Android, the operating system, work on low-end hardware. They need to make the applications as well. The thing about this is it could also lock in Android applications to being essentially low-quality, low-end, lowest common denominator applications, even less competitive with iOS. Maybe, but think about it. If you've got super high-end hardware running software that's designed for lower-end hardware, it's going to run so smoothly that, okay, it might not have necessarily all the features of iOS, but if you've got a really smooth experience, and I mean, th- look, let's face facts, you're using an iPhone, there's got to be a reason for that. I don't like Android. I think Android is basically unstable, crashy, and slow and shit. But at the same time, I like the um, the fact that I can configure it and customize it how I want. And the fact that it is a little bit more open than iOS. Yeah, and yep. also, it's a lot cheaper as well. Right. But there is this chasm between iOS and Android as far as I can see in terms of the user experience and again that is a similar to the the chasm between Mac OS and other operating systems it's to do with controlling the hardware as well as the software you're going to have a better experience but generally speaking the way Android is written and just put together is is just terrible as far as I can see yeah and Samsung would seem to agree with you Well, yeah. I mean, that's why they have been backing this Tizen horse for a long time now. It's been a very slow burn. There have only been four phones, I think, in total, and one of which has been released recently. But it's it's kind of their backup plan, isn't it? And they have announced this week that they are looking to use Tizen in their IoT stuff rather than Android things. Well, I mean, they didn't overtly say rather than Android things, but that's what you've got to read into it. That would be the other option. And to my surprise, it's not straight up Tizen. It's Tizen RT, which would obviously stand for real time, like a more streamlined real time version of Tizen. Yeah. And they want to get it on all of their home appliances by 2020, which is not very long in terms of these um, industrial timescales, is it? And so you're going to have smart fridges, smart washing machines, all shit that I have no interest in personally, but I think people do. Um, And instead of looking to Google, they're looking to do it in-house with Tizen. Mm -hmm. 
I don't think people have an interest yet. If they get it right, people would. If, for example, I could have a push notification go to my phone when my oven was done with something, I might potentially find that useful from time to time. But the implementation is going to really matter. And they say their goal, this was a report that was over at uh, TizenExperts.com, and they were at a event where all of this was being discussed, and they were interviewing Samsung reps, and they say their goal is to have all home appliances smart, to create devices that work in sync and communicate according to Samsung's Internet of Things agenda. <laughs> <laughs> That's scary sounding, isn't it? <laughs> and they, the example they give sounds so horrible. Imagine you're in the middle of a riveting scene and you get a pop-up notification on your TV that your laundry is done. That is not what I want. But that's what they're trying to build. Yeah, their their agenda, it sounds like a threat, doesn't it? Our IoT agenda. Yeah, yeah. You know what else uh, Samsung was bragging about, which I, I have, I don't really know, because uh, Tizen's adoption is not huge. But here's some perspective for you. They confirmed from, this is from Samsung, that Tizen has surpassed BlackBerry OS in smartphone usage to become the fourth largest smartphone OS in two years. And Tizen has also surpassed Android Wear in market share to become the second most used wearable platform. Yeah, but that says less about the success of um, Tizen on wearables than it does about the success or failure of Android Wear and wearables in general. I know that Apple are doing okay with their watch, but they're not doing as well as they hoped. And it seems like every week, or at least every few weeks, I'm seeing headlines about another manufacturer is stopping making smartwatches because they're just not selling well enough. Yeah, I would say I agree. It does say more about how the wearable market's doing in general. And I think it also does say how the entire wearable market is doing versus the Apple Watch. The Apple Watch does seem to be selling, but I think I, I think you're probably right, Joe. I don't think it's probably selling as well as Apple wants. And there's been rumors recently about them adding uh, glucose monitoring mm. and all kinds of things, which uh, I got to say as somebody who has experimented with a couple of pebbles – um, three Android Wear watches, a couple of Apple watches. I Here at Jupiter Broadcasting, we tr- we kind of pass equipment around. So we all kind of like somebody gets it and we all kind of get to try it out for a little while. And, you know, for a good amount of time, six months or so. I have to say out of all of them, probably the health monitoring on the Apple Watch is, is pretty solid. Uh, they have some good stuff there. And Google Health has been getting better and better, Google Fit, I guess. But uh, it really – if you're into that kind of stuff, like – so if you're somebody who goes for an evening walk, for example, and you want to see if you're progressively walking further or faster, it's nice for that kind of stuff. If you're somebody who is less inclined to get out, but if you can gamify it a little bit and there is a goal that you will complete if you just go for a little bit further of a walk and you're, it, it's just one more thing that inclines you to go – I find it useful for that kind of stuff. And whoever nails that the best, and it could be Fitbit for all I know, but whoever nails that the best will probably have the most successful wearable product. And until then, Tizen can st- can sell hundreds of thousands and Android Wear can sell hundreds of thousands and Apple Watch will sell a few million, I think. Yeah, sounds about right. Now, Joe, we have some good news. For those of you who like to consume this show in video, we have new video feeds that will be live as of this episode. It will be embedded at the Jupiter Broadcasting website with each episode post, but you can also grab the feed at linuxactionnews.com slash video. Yeah, and there was kind of a mixed reaction to the video that you put together for the first episode, wasn't there? It was a bit psychedelic. I would say. (laughs) 
Yeah, sorry about that. I quite liked it. I was trying to go for something new, as you know, because we were chatting about it. Yeah, I think it looked all right, but some people thought it was uh, a bit headache-inducing. But hopefully the uh, this one will be better. Yeah, we'll make a few tweaks over the next couple of weeks. And don't forget, the audio feeds are always available, linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe. And you can tweet feedback or stories, twitter.com slash linuxactionnews. Yeah, and a quick plug for user error, which has come back. Brand new episode just came out this week. I loved it. It was a lot of fun. We'll have some good Linux content in there. So go listen to User Air, and then after you're done, go check out Late Night Linux. Yeah, my other show, latenightlinux.com, with uh, Ike from the Solus uh, Project and uh, a couple of other guys who are not going to get a mention. <laughs> <laughs> we love them, though. No, Phelim and Jesse. Uh, or, yeah, it's, it's a good group of guys. We have a good, good laugh on that show. So check it out, latenightlinux.com. Okay, everyone, thank you for tuning into this week's episode of Linux Action News. We'll be back next Monday at linuxactionnews.com. I'm at Chris LAS. I'm at Joe Ressington. And we'll see you right back here next Monday. See you later. later.